Hello, and welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Connor. Thank you for listening. In the last episode of our series on Queen Christina of Sweden, we were introduced to Christina Vasa, better known as Queen Christina of Sweden. She was the first and only child of King Gustav II Adolf and Queen Maria Eleonora. As such, great expectations were placed upon her from a very young age. The future of the House of Vasa and of the Kingdom of Sweden were dependent on her. These great expectations were made even greater when her father was slain while leading Protestant forces to victory in the Thirty Years' War. Christina became the Queen of Sweden at only six years old. A Regency Council ruled in her stead until she could take on the burdens of rule herself. In the meantime, she received an education that befitted any male monarch. She was well-versed in the Greek and Roman classics, as well as theology. She was fluent in six different languages, including Hebrew, and she took especially to such traditionally masculine activities such as hunting and horseback riding. Above all, she had a great appreciation for the arts and philosophy, her studies of which took up almost as much time as her studies on statecraft and diplomacy. Christina was a polymath, fairly competent at anything she set her mind to. Those around her were confident that she would make a fine monarch, perhaps one of the best in Sweden's history. Christina was crowned Queen of the Swedes, Goths, and Vandals, Great Princess of Finland, Duchess of Estonia and Karelia, and Lady of Ingria on the 18th of December, 1644, the day she turned 18 years old. From that day forward, Christina took over the reins of state from the Regency Council that had so dutifully ruled in her stead for over a decade. However, Christina's strong will led her into conflict with her advisor and the former head of the Regency Council, Chancellor Axel Oxenstierna. Once Christina had assumed the throne, the two got into a spat over a peace treaty that would have ended the war with Denmark. Oxenstierna wanted to exact harsher terms on the defeated Danish than Christina was comfortable with, but ultimately, Christina won that battle of wills. Another point of contention between the two was over Christina's cousin and erstwhile sweetheart, Carl Gustav. When they were 16 and 20 respectively, Christina and Carl Gustav wanted nothing more than to marry, but... Chancellor Oxenstierna would have no such thing. It simply made more sense for Christina to be wed to a suitor from abroad, so as to enhance Sweden's diplomatic standing. What's more, Christina was still underage. Ultimately, however, it turned out to be a non-issue, as, when Carl Gustav returned from the war in 1646, he returned to find that Christina no longer held any feelings for him. This was because Christina was beginning to realize her distaste for romance, love, sex, marriage, and other things of that nature. She would have other lovers. Magnus de Lagardie, one of her courtiers, for example, was the object of her affections for the time, as was her chambermaid, Ebba Spar. Neither of these two reciprocated her feelings towards them. Now, one would be forgiven for forgetting that all the while Christina was coming of age, the Thirty Years' War was still ongoing in Europe. The Swedish army continued to campaign throughout Germany, even following the death of Christina's father, Gustavus Adolphus. The rebellious Protestant German principalities of the Holy Roman Empire made peace with the Habsburgs in 1635, and, for a time, Sweden was left to carry on the Protestant cause all by itself. This all changed the following year, when France officially entered the war on behalf of the Protestants. France had long been a geopolitical rival of the Habsburg dynasty, whose members sat on the thrones of Austria and Spain. 
Now, at this time, the true power behind the French throne was King Louis XIII's Minister of State, a Machiavellian clergyman known as Cardinal Richelieu. Richelieu monitored the course of the Thirty Years' War very carefully, searching for whatever opportunities he could to undermine Habsburg power. He decided that advancing the interests of France outweighed his allegiance to the Catholic Church. From the moment that Gustav II Adolf entered the conflict, he was guaranteed monetary subsidies by Richelieu, but the French stopped short of offering direct military assistance. As the Protestant war effort began to atrophy, however, Cardinal Richelieu saw no recourse but to intervene directly. On March 20, 1646, Richelieu and Axel Oxenstierna signed the Treaty of Wismar, wherein France agreed to fight against the Catholic forces in the West, and the Swedes would continue to fight in the East, still with France's monetary support. The French intervention, as well as their renewed material support, reinvigorated the Swedish war effort, and, for the next decade, the Franco-Swedish coalition won further victories against the Catholic forces. But, as the war dragged well on into the 1640s, neither side had achieved total victory, and both were beginning to suffer the negative effects of nearly three decades of protracted warfare. Since 1641, sporadic attempts had been made to end the conflict, but it wasn't until 1644 that a concerted effort was made to negotiate a peace treaty. For the next four years, over 100 parties, representing the various Catholic and Protestant powers of Europe, negotiated an end to the war in the western German province of Westphalia. Negotiations between the Catholic powers in France took place in the strictly Catholic city of Munster, while negotiations between the Catholic powers in Sweden took place in the mainly Protestant, but officially tolerant city of Osnabrück, some 60 kilometers due north. As it just so happened, these negotiations began the same year that Christina ascended to the throne. The new queen was possessed of a powerful desire to end the conflict that had claimed the lives of her father and eight million others. But not everybody shared her sentiments. Many in Sweden were Protestant hardliners, who wanted Protestant hegemony over Europe. More pragmatic figures, such as Chancellor Oxenstierna, wished to see the war continue only until Sweden was able to secure the most favorable terms at the peace conference. Sweden was already in a rather advantageous position at the outset of negotiations. Their initial demands, as suggested by Oxenstierna, were rather steep. They demanded 20 million rixdollars, as well as a large swath of territory in the Holy Roman Empire, including the whole regions of Silesia and Pomerania, and the cities of Wismar, Bremen, and Verden. Unlike at Bromsebro, it seemed that Oxenstierna might have his way at these negotiations. Sweden's official delegate to these negotiations was none other than the Chancellor's son, Johan Oxenstierna. Johan Oxenstierna, then in his mid-thirties, is described as being, quote, experienced in business and diplomacy, but he had so little capacity that anybody could see directly through his plans. He was both obstinate and vehement, and prone to vice, end quote. The author of this passage was being a bit generous in describing him as being experienced in diplomacy. His diplomatic experience amounted to little more than being sent on diplomatic missions as the executor of his father's will. Given this description, it should come as little surprise to learn that Johann Oxenstierna did not take the proceedings very seriously. He acted as if he was in Osnabrück to attend a bachelor party, not to end the hitherto most destructive conflict in European history. He frequently hosted banquets with his massive retinue. He drank to excess nearly every night, and often slept in irresponsibly late. Still, 
Christina wanted to mitigate any influence the Chancellor might have on the negotiations. So, she dispatched a second, smaller delegation to Osnabrück, headed by Johann Adler Salvius. The 60-year-old Salvius was of a commoner background, and over the years he had earned his way to great power and influence. He was a great deal more competent and responsible than his counterpart, and he is considered Sweden's most capable statesman of the period, next to the elder Oxenstierna himself. Salvius was sent with instructions to achieve peace at whatever cost, even if it meant relinquishing some of Sweden's claims. Johan Oxenstierna, on the other hand, was directed to stall the negotiations so as to provide the army with the opportunity to score one final decisive victory, or to give the nobles running the army a chance to acquire greater prestige and, more importantly, loot. Although much of it was not Johan Oxenstierna's doing, the negotiations were initially marred by constant discord. It was not until 1648 that the treaties of Munster and Osnabrück were signed, on May the 15th and October the 24th, respectively. Collectively termed the Peace of Westphalia, these treaties finally brought an end not only to the Thirty Years' War, but all wars of religion in Europe. It is also significant in the history of foreign relations for defining the modern nation-state and whatnot, but that isn't really relevant at this time. What is important to know is that, despite Christina's policy of moderation, for which she was much maligned by her contemporaries, Sweden still gained a considerable amount of territory from the treaty. These developments mark the beginning of the Stormaxstirden, or the Era of Great Power in Swedish history. While the negotiations were proceeding, the cities of Osnabrück and Munster were demilitarized, but the two sides had not agreed to a temporary armistice, meaning that over the four-year period while the Congress of Westphalia was in session, the war went on elsewhere. The most important military action during this period, or at least the one most relevant to our narrative, is the Battle of Prague. The Queen's policy of moderation had become well known to the nobility, and so they decided to take the opportunity to secure for themselves what honor, glory, and loot that they could. In early 1648, General Hans Christoph von Königsmark led his men into the rich Habsburg crown lands of Bohemia. On July 25th, 1648, he gave the order to attack the Bohemian capital of Prague, where the war had begun 30 years prior. The Swedish army was able to quickly occupy the Lesser Town, the region of the city on the eastern bank of the Vlatva River. However, a staunch defense of the main bridge prevented them from taking the western half of the city. The call for reinforcements went out, but they would not arrive until the fall of that year, and by that point the negotiations at Westphalia had been concluded. Luckily for the Swedes, this portion of the city they currently occupied was home to Prague Castle, which housed a sizable collection of valuables owned by the late Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II von Habsburg. It is debatable as to whether Rudolf II's collection was the principal object of the Battle of Prague, but the Swedes soon took to seizing the castle and looting the valuables within. It took over a month to catalog all the loot, which is estimated to have been worth about 50 million livres, roughly equivalent to 700 million in today's US dollars. Among these items were 500 paintings, 370 scientific instruments, 40 quote-unquote Indian curiosities, sizable amounts of precious stones and metals, several pieces of furniture, 30 large chests of books, among which were two famous historical manuscripts, the Codex Argentius and the Codex Gigas, and last, but certainly not least, a singular live lion. 
The collection of Emperor Rudolf II was carted out of the city and brought to Stockholm, and the bulk of it was added to the Queen's personal collection. This was all a part of her grand project to increase the cultural prestige of Sweden. It was only fitting, Christina reasoned, that a kingdom with such military and diplomatic prestige as Sweden should have a cultural prestige to match. She dispatched agents far afield to purchase additions to her growing collection. She had a particular affinity for French and Italian art. But her collection was not limited to manuscripts, paintings, and sculptures. She, in a sense, collected learned men. She kept up correspondences with many of the public intellectuals of the day, some of whom actually made the journey to Stockholm to visit her. She was constantly surrounded at court by philosophers, theologians, scientists, physicians, and so on. The vast majority of these people were of French origin. In 1648, a series of civil disturbances known to history as the Fronde had disrupted French society, thus causing a number of French notables to flee the country. Christina was very eager to welcome these émigrés to her court, but the feeling was not mutual. For all the improvements made to the city during the reigns of Christina and her father, Stockholm was still a backwater provincial town compared to Paris, boasting a population only a tenth of that of the French capital. Christina's new guests did not hide their disdain for the country and its inhabitants, nor did the native Swedes hide their contempt for them. A quote from one Swedish courtier, The farther they travel from their homeland, the more insolent they seem to become. It seems they travel with no other purpose than to mock people, to insult their customs, and to break their laws, and to parade their own pride and extravagance throughout the world. End quote. In the disputes between the French and her countrymen, Christina more often than not took the side of the French. She endeavored to win the esteem of her guests, showering them with expensive gifts and noble titles. The French man with whom she grew closest was Pierre-Hector Chanu. Chanu, unlike the others, did not find himself in Stockholm fleeing political violence. He arrived in 1645 as France's official ambassador to Sweden. As the representative of the other foremost European power, Christina naturally had much to discuss with Chanu. The two soon took a liking to each other, on a personal level as well, with Chanu writing of the Queen, quote, She speaks French as though she had been born at the Louvre, and she has a quick and most noble mind, a soul most wise and discreet, and she has a certain air about her. Her every pastime is the Senate or her study and exercise. She speaks Latin very easily, and she loves poetry. In short, even without the crown, she would be one of the most estimable people in the world. End quote. It was thanks to Chenot that Christina began a correspondence with the most famous thinker of the 17th century, René Descartes. At this point in time, the most prolific period of his career was over with. His free thinking and borderline heretical ideas had led him to run afoul of the religious authorities in his native France, and he immigrated to the Netherlands in 1628. Even in the Netherlands, where religious tolerance was enshrined in the law, Descartes still faced persecution from the local clergy. Twenty years later, he tried to move back to France, but soon afterwards left because of the Fronde. Returning to the Netherlands, Descartes took up residence in the small village of Egmond. He had become disillusioned with the whole process, and refused to work on or publish any more works. Christina became very interested in Descartes' philosophy, and when she first learned that Ambassador Chanu knew him personally, she jumped at the opportunity to contact him. She wrote to him, asking a series of leading questions, hoping to provoke a response. 
The questions were focused on a subject Christina had long struggled with. Love. What is love? She wrote to him. Which of the two, hate or love, is more harmful when misapplied? Despite the fact that emotions and the like were not really the subjects of in which he was well-versed, Descartes replied to the best of his ability. He replied thusly, quote, Love is a predisposition of the parts of the brain, although it may derive from the object of the senses. These pass through the nerves to reach the brain, and they leave a sort of imprint, so that the next time we encounter a similar object, we respond to it in much the same way. When I was a boy, I fell in love with a girl who had a bit of a squint, and, for the longest time afterwards, whenever I saw someone with a squint, I felt the same passion of love. So, if we love someone without knowing why, we can assume that that person is somehow similar to someone we loved before, even if we do not know in what way." End quote. Christina was taken with the candidity and intimacy of Descartes' response. Thus began a correspondence lasting almost two years, during which time Christina and Descartes built up a mutual admiration. Their most frequent topic of discussion was religion. Christina harbored doubts about Protestantism from a young age. It is not uncommon for individuals to experience doubt in regards to religion, especially someone as fiercely independent-minded as Christina, and especially during this period, the eve of the Age of Enlightenment, right as thinkers such as Descartes were beginning to openly question the nature of the divine. But, Christina's issues with Protestantism were deeper than merely a quarter-life existential crisis. Some authors have speculated that she was never truly a believer in Protestantism to begin with. Christina herself said as much in an autobiography, written later in her life. In this autobiography, Christina recorded a specific incident from her early childhood, which soured her towards the faith. Quote, I heard a sermon in which the preacher described the last judgment so vividly that I was filled with dread and the thought that my last hour had come. I imagined that heaven and earth would collapse and bury me in their ruins. I began to weep bitterly, for I was convinced my end was near. End quote. After leaving the church, the young Christina turned to her tutor, Johann Mathai, and asked him, quote, What was that preacher talking about? Why did you never tell me of this day of dread? What will happen to me when that day arrives? Will it be this evening? End quote. Mathai replied, quote, You will go to paradise. But in order to do this, you must obey your teachers. You must pray to God, and you must work hard. End quote. In her writings, Christina always emphasized the joyless, repressive nature of Lutheran Protestantism as the primary force which repulsed her from it. Over time, Christina intently studied all different religions, searching for the one that suited her the best, and reached the conclusion that it was best for her to continue to adhere, at least publicly, the religion of her country. This adherence wasn't merely a formality, however. Christina frequently weighed in on theological matters and actively supported Protestant religious policies. In private, however, Christina's feelings towards Protestantism are best described as an indifference rather than a hatred. Instead, she sought to create a religion for herself, modeling her life according to the works of the ancient Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. According to Christina, it was not until she began her correspondence with Descartes that she began to seriously consider Catholicism as an alternative. Despite his break with traditional Christian theology, Descartes considered himself to be a devout Catholic toward the very end. Drawing heavily from the ideas of the classical philosophers Christina so admired, Descartes asserted that humankind was indeed created in the image of God, and thus had free will. Quote, 
Free will is the noblest thing we can possess, because, above all, it makes us like God to some extent, and frees us from being mere objects of creation. End quote. In Christina's mind, Descartes and his Catholicism came to represent the antithesis of the bleak Protestant theology she had come to so detest, that one's fate is predetermined by God, and thus one has little agency in their life. Eventually, Christina would also come to the conclusion that Catholicism aligned more closely with her personal convictions, including the intellectualism and aestheticism she found so lacking in her own society, but also celibacy. Given the volatile cultural climate surrounding religion at the time, a public conversion to Catholicism was unthinkable. Such a thing would result in the queen being forced to abdicate her throne, at the very least. And at the moment, the notion of converting to Catholicism would have been little more than a passing thought in the mind of the 23-year-old queen. For the time being, she contented herself with learning all that she could about Descartes' philosophy. It is for that reason that, in early 1649, she invited the philosopher to stay in Sweden and personally tutor her. Despite his claim that he, quote, could not be more perfectly devoted to the queen's every command even if he had been born a Swede, end quote, Descartes was very reluctant to make the long journey to what he described as the land of bears, rocks, and ice. Much of this reluctance can be attributed to simple laziness, however. He did harbor legitimate concerns as to how he, a Catholic thinker, would be treated in Protestant, anti-intellectual Sweden. I have alternatively seen it claimed that 1. Descartes made the decision to travel to Sweden to help Christina organize a royal academy there and to earn her patronage, 2 that Descartes was eventually persuaded to travel to Sweden by his friend Chanot, or three, that Descartes was on the fence about relocating to Sweden, but was effectively kidnapped and forced to go by a small band of soldiers sent by Christina. Whatever the case, Descartes arrived in Stockholm in early October, after a sea voyage lasting a little over a month. Despite all the to-do that Christina made about Descartes coming to Sweden in the first place, for the first two months, the two hardly had the opportunity to see each other. Descartes moved into Chanot's house, within walking distance of Christina's residence at the castle of Trecornor. There, he finished his most recent work, a treatise on human emotion entitled Passions of the Soul. This work was based on his correspondence with both Christina and Princess Elizabeth of the Palatinate. It soon became clear from the limited interactions between Christina and Descartes that they did not get along. Christina was somewhat of a debutante. She rarely held great interest in a single subject for an extended period of time. Thus, between the time of her correspondence with Descartes and the time of his actual arrival, Christina had lost interest in the subjects he dragged him across the Baltic Sea to teach her. He was nevertheless determined to win the Queen's good graces. He was commissioned to write the libretto for a ballet that was to be performed on the Queen's birthday in her honor. It was entitled The Birth of Peace, and was intended to honor Christina for her efforts in helping to end the Thirty Years' War. Unfortunately, Descartes did not have that much of a talent for the stage. He was spared the indignity of being forced to personally perform in the ballet, but he was quite embarrassed at the poor quality of his work. He attempted to have all copies of The Birth of Peace destroyed. One copy was allegedly saved from the flames by Pierre Chanot, although I have yet been unable to locate this text. The Birth of Peace was received surprisingly well at court, however. So well, in fact, that Descartes was commissioned to write a second dramatic work, although this one was to just be a stage play. He never had the opportunity to finish it. 
In January of 1650, Christina had finally decided to put Descartes to use. She obliged him to give her philosophy lessons, three times every week at five o'clock in the morning. January was the coldest month of a particularly cold year in Sweden. Descartes did not take very kindly to the harsh Swedish climate, and he is quoted as saying that the weather there was cold enough to freeze men's very thoughts. The stress of arising at such an ungodly hour, combined with the poor heating in the castle, made the 51-year-old Descartes susceptible to illness, and by the end of the month, he was bedridden with influenza. Christina sent one of her personal physicians to attend to him, but he refused treatment on the grounds that he did not trust Swedish medicine. Instead, he relied on his own, very limited knowledge of medicine, and opted to self-medicate with a concoction of wine and tobacco. His condition only continued to worsen. He soon developed pneumonia. By the time he finally accepted the Swede's medical treatment, it was far too late. On February 11, 1650, René Descartes died. Christina did not really feel responsible for the philosopher's ignoble death, but she was devastated by it nevertheless. She planned to give him a grand funeral befitting someone of his stature, and she wished to have him interred in Ritterholm Church alongside her father and the previous Swedish kings. These plans hit a bit of a snag when the clergy voiced their opposition to the burial of a Catholic in a Protestant church. Ultimately, Christina's preoccupation with other affairs led funeral plans to be postponed. After two weeks had passed, Descartes' body was buried, out of necessity, in Stockholm Cemetery for the unbaptized, which, in this context, means infants, the unidentified, and heretics. Instead of the grand marble tomb Christina had wanted for him, Descartes' gravesite was marked by a simple wooden plank. It would not be until 1666 that his remains were repatriated to his native France. What it was that distracted Christina from Descartes' funeral were the preparations for her coronation. Christina had been reigning queen for half a decade now, and she still had yet to be officially crowned. Periodically, plans for a coronation ceremony had been drawn up and subsequently abandoned because the resources were needed elsewhere. But now, with the war in Europe concluded, the men of the Reichstag felt comfortable enough with the country's financial situation to begin the preparations in earnest. Not only that, but many saw this as an opportunity for Sweden to demonstrate its prestige to the rest of the world, showing that Sweden's people were as cultured as its military was mighty. The date was tentatively set for October 20th, 1650. Over the next few months, the Reichstag regardless found itself struggling to come up with the funds required for the ceremony, for reasons that will be readily apparent. Christina's coronation robe was, quote, an extraordinary creation of purple velvet lined with ermine and trimmed with pearls and laden with circles of solid gold crowns. It was 12 feet long, and the weight of the crowns alone made it difficult to manage, end quote. Even Christina herself was distressed by the astronomical cost of the garment, the throne room at Uppsala, the traditional coronation place of Swedish kings, had to be redecorated. Christina ordered, at the last minute, 35 paintings from the Dutch artist Jacob Jordiaens for the occasion. She also ordered several tapestries, with which to decorate her royal apartments back in Stockholm. Christina also insisted that a series of triumphal arches in the Roman style be built for the occasion. In May of 1650, a mere five months before the ceremony was to take place, the venue was changed from Uppsala to Stockholm. Two of the three grand marble arches Christina had envisioned had to be abandoned. 
There was simply no way they could be completed in such a time frame. All efforts focused on the main arch, which was now to be made of canvas and plaster over a sturdy wooden frame. Thanks to the efforts of the skilled French architect Jean de Valet, the arch not only looked passable, but several observers attested that it looked just like the Great Arch of Constantine in Rome. The crown itself, ironically, was one of the less grand expenses. Maria Eleonora's old crown was to be used, after having been refurbished and upgraded to reflect Christina's superior rank. The ceremony proceeded as planned on October 20th. Christina, riding in a lavish open-air carriage pulled by three stark white horses, led the procession along the streets of Stockholm from her residence at Tre Cronor to the church of Storkirkan. Following her was the Queen Mother, Maria Eleonora, returned from Denmark two years prior, and following them was an elaborate procession of nobles and courtiers. Behind them was a sizable contingent of commoners. The procession was so long that it took three hours for the entire parade to travel less than a mile. At the Storkirkan Cathedral, they were greeted by the Archbishop of Uppsala. Christina sat upon a throne in front of an altar, where the Archbishop anointed her with holy water, and presented her with the royal regalia, an ornamental sword, a golden scepter and key, and a golden orb. Upon placing the crown on Christina's head, the Archbishop declared, somewhat defensively, Christina has been crowned and no other person. The procession back to Trecranor was just as extravagant. Queen Christina was hailed by the citizens and showered with gold and silver coins. She was welcomed back to the castle that evening by an 1800-gun salute. All were later invited to the castle for a sumptuous banquet, and the public fountains flowed with wine. The decadence of the coronation ceremony attests to the foremost issue with Queen Christina's administration. Her grand project of cultural enrichment had practically bankrupted the crown. Quote, In time, Christina, with her extravagant temperament, came to view the crown's assets as the loaves and fishes on the Mount of Olives, miraculously renewable, no matter how many hands dipped into the basket. Moreover, she could not, or would not, distinguish between the crown's property and what belonged to her personally. It was always available for endless public works, or for presents for her favorite, or libraries, or paintings, or armies, or orchestras. She spent it all, sometimes justly, rewarding a soldier's bravery or a civil servant's hard work, but more often than not at random, and always more lavishly than was necessary. She had little understanding of finance and made no attempt to learn. End quote. For all its newfound geopolitical clout and enhanced cultural status, Sweden was by no means a wealthy nation. It was sparsely populated and lacking in valuable natural resources, and its geographic location did not make it a prime hub for trade. The fact of the matter was that, even if Christina had been more frugal, there were very few streams of revenue to be exploited in the first place. A simple solution to the financial crisis was the sale of noble titles. Traditionally, noble titles were conferred only in truly exceptional instances, such as the cases of Oxel Oxenstierna and Johann Salvius, two men that had been awarded with noble titles as a reward for their lifetimes of service to the realm. Now, noble titles were merely sold to the highest bidder, and at an incredibly high rate. Between 1644 and 1654, nearly 500 new noble offices had been created. The vast majority of these new nobles were foreigners, mainly wealthy merchants from Western Europe. To supplement the income gained from the sale of the titles themselves, 
Crown lands were to be auctioned off to provide the new nobles with estates. This had the unintended effect of depriving the state of what few assets it had to begin with. In short, the sale of noble titles served to create a new, bloated noble class that could not be easily controlled, and to affront the established nobility. The people most harmed by Christina's failed economic policies were the commoners. People already lived on these plots of land that the state was auctioning off, and they were reluctant to give over their shares. The new nobles used various methods, mostly illegal ones, to eject them from the land regardless. Christina, for her part, was sympathetic to the peasants, and issued a few edicts intended to protect them from such abuses by the nobility. This proved difficult to enforce. Sweden's bureaucrats were overworked as it is. The state compensated some peasants for the loss of their lands, further offsetting any economic gains made by the state in the first place. As other schemes failed to generate the revenue the state so desperately needed, the state now turned to the tried-and-true method of taxation. The problem was that the tax base had shrunk considerably due to the glut of new nobles who were, by law, exempt from taxes. As a result, the commoners, those who couldn't afford a noble title, were forced to shoulder the most of the burden. The situation worsened in 1650. That particularly harsh winter that had led to Descartes' untimely death had caused crop failures. Sweden suffered the worst food shortages it had seen in a century. There were food riots in and around the capital. The country was grappled with unrest. The nobles wanted to limit Christina's authority, and the peasants were irate that she did not use that same authority to protect them. There were murmurings that the situation may erupt into a civil war, such as the one that was ongoing in England at the time. At some point during this time, an attempt was made on the life of the queen. While she was in church one day praying, a would-be assassin brandishing two daggers charged through the crowd of worshippers towards the queen. He was able to overcome two of her bodyguards. The captain of the guard, who was in the midst of prayer, became aware of the situation at the last minute and put himself between the queen and her attacker. After a short struggle, he was subdued. He was later found to be insane and was committed to an asylum. The queen only continued to lose popularity with the masses. In December 1651, Carl Gustav, while on a hunting trip at Oland, came into possession of a rather scandalous letter from an anonymous author. The letter was primarily a scathing critique of Queen Christina. The author accused her, not unjustifiably, of being negligent with the country's finances, while the common people suffered. Chancellor Oxenstierna, Magnus de la Gardie, and several other notable people at court were also the targets of the author's scorn and derision. As if that wasn't enough, the letter ended with a plea to Carl Gustav to place himself upon the throne of Sweden and to sacrifice the life of the queen if he deemed it necessary. Carl Gustav did not heed the call, and he sent the letter on to the court at Stockholm. Christina was enraged at the letter, taking particular offense to the author's comparison of her to the biblical antagonist Queen Jezebel. Christina suspected that the author of the anonymous letter was the court historian, Arnold Johann Massenius. Massenius and his family had been a source of intrigue at court before. His father, Johannes, was the court historian before him, but he had been in prison for nearly 20 years for conspiring to put the Catholic king of Poland-Lithuania, Sigismund III, on the throne of Sweden. Arnold Johann was just as rebellious as his father, and his salacious writings about Chancellor Oxenstierna landed him in prison as well at the age of 15. 
Because his criticisms had been directed at the Chancellor and not her personally, Christina had Mecenius' sentence commuted. He was then given a noble title and the property that came with it, and he was also appointed to his father's old position at court. An investigation into the conspiracy revealed that the handwriting of the letter was not that of Mecenius, but of his son. Both men were arrested. Under the pain of torture, Mecenius the Younger confessed to authoring the letter, and his father confessed to knowing of it. They were given a private trial that amounted to little more than a formality. As soon as she heard the confessions, Christina had condemned both men to death. Mecenius the Younger was subjected to a truly gruesome fate. He was broken on the wheel and quartered. His mutilated body was displayed in public as a warning. His father was simply beheaded. As she approached the tenth year of her reign, the stress of rule became too much for Christina to bear. Resentment from the commoners, resistance from the nobility, the nation's dire financial straits, the pressure put on her to find a consort and to produce an heir, and so on and so forth. Descartes' death also sent her into a deep depression. To distract herself from her emotional turmoil, she dedicated herself entirely to her work, eating and drinking very little, and only sleeping for five hours a night. Her youthful energy had been drained from her, and now her health was beginning to fail. She began to suffer anxiety attacks, which became progressively worse. In 1651, she suffered from a particularly bad fainting spell. During the two or three hours when she was unconscious, her pulse had stopped completely. When she awoke, she told her doctor that she never thought that she would hear his voice again. And that is where we will leave things off for now. Be sure to tune in again in two weeks to watch as Christina reaches a breaking point and makes the fateful decision that would change her life forever. If you have any questions, concerns, quandaries, anything of that nature, you can email me at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can address such things to me via Twitter or Facebook, links to which will be in the description of this episode. Until two weeks from now, this has been the Historia Dramatica podcast. Thank you for listening as always. I'm your host, Willem Connor, signing off.